So Galatians chapter 4, we, we started it last week, and I knew that uh, we would not be able to get through this entire text in, in one week. Uh, and even as we read it again today, maybe some of you guys were reading through it and just thinking to yourself, man, what in the world is Paul talking about? And so once again, I just want to remind you that, and we, we talked about this pretty in depth last week, so I'm not going to mention it again. But, uh, but don't be too taken aback by that word allegorical. Uh, really, all Paul's doing here is providing an illustration of what he's been teaching us all the way back from, from uh, chapter 2, verse 15. So we're not only coming to the end of our study of these few verses, but we're also coming to the end of the second major section of Galatians, where we have just proven time and time and time again that salvation is by grace through faith alone. It is not of works. It is not of any righteousness of our own. It is not by law keeping. And, and even though we, uh, like sheep, have a tendency to go astray, God is fighting for our soul through the book of Galatians and he's bringing us back and hammering that truth down again and again and again. We are saved by faith alone Faith alone, faith alone. Let me ask you a question. During the study, have you gotten a little tired of hearing that? <laughs> because Paul has just gone all the way around it over and over and over again because he wants you to get this down. And you know, as Christians, we might say, okay, Paul, we get it. Salvation is by faith alone. Salvation, okay, we get it, Paul. Let's move on. But do we though? You know, I just read a study this week where, uh, and I'm not usually a huge believer in statistics. I think they're always open to interpretation. But, uh, but this one was interesting. It said that uh, some 40% of evangelicals who claim to be born again by Christ believe that our good works take us to heaven. So do we believe this? Do we? That's a question that we need to understand, that we need to have down. This is the core of our faith, that salvation is by faith alone. And so Paul, like every good preacher, is going to give an illustration. He's not denying the historicity of, of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael. He's not, he's not doing that like a lot of people tend to do today with allegorical interpretation. He's not, he's not ignoring those facts. But what he's doing is he's drawing out an illustration and he's showing us that, that just like Abraham had two sons, one of which was born from a slave woman, one of which, and according to the flesh, one of which that was born according to promise, and because Abraham uh, believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, Isaac was born not through fleshly works, not through fleshly means, but he was born because of the faith that Abraham had in the promise of God's redemption. And in the same way, we are saved today in the same manner. And Paul is asking you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the message of the law? Do, have you not heard what the actual message is? He says, you know, you want to be under the law. The law itself tells you that you cannot do it. And we're actually going to see that today in some verses that may surprise you that's in there. So we saw that when we truly listen to the message of the law, there's going to be three responses. And we did the first one last week, that we will rely on his promise. And we saw that last week, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to continue that any further, except just to say that Paul is simply bringing out the historical facts of Abraham and showed where he messed up, where he began to depend on his flesh instead of his faith. 
and, uh, and we see the, the problems that that occurred. But today we're going to be looking at verse, we're going to begin in verse 24, and we're going to see that the second response, that when we truly listen to the law, the second response we're going to have is that we are going to rejoice in his provision. We're going to rejoice in his provision. Look at, look at verse 24. We're going to skip the phrase. Now this may be interpreted allegorically because we, we gave that its due last week. He says, these women are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem and she is in slavery with her kids. So, so Paul says that for the purpose of this illustration, these two women represent two covenants. And as you see, there are, there are two women, two covenants, two cities, uh, two sons, and it can get a little confusing. So I'm, I'm going to try to narrow it down as much as I can. That these two women, these two mothers represent two different covenants. And the first one is Hagar, who we find out about in verses 24 and 25. The covenant that she represents is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. Now, what do you know about Mount Sinai? What happened at Mount Sinai? Do you remember? Of course you do. What did Moses receive at Mount Sinai? He received the law, didn't he? He received the Ten Commandments. And so Hagar represents Mount Sinai. And keep in mind that Hagar historically uh, was Abraham's attempt to bring about God's plan of redemption by his own flesh and ingenuity. And so Paul says that that represents the law. That represents the law attempting salvation by the law. And Hagar is a representative of Mount Sinai. Sinai is the birthplace of the old covenant. It's the place where the law was given. And by the way, notice here in verse uh, 25, he says, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. You ever think about that for a moment? Why does Paul mention it's in Arabia? To give the, to give the Galatians a geography lesson, right? No. I think he's actually making a very pointed point here. The law didn't come from the promised land. It's in Arabia. It's in the desert. You want to stay in the desert? You know how I learned how to tell the difference between desert and dessert? Because dessert has two S's and you want two desserts, but you only want one desert, right? Um, well, I don't know about you, but I don't want any desert at all. And yet that's where the law was born. It was born in the desert. It was born in Arabia outside of the promised land. And if you recall, the end of the story is that Moses never actually got to go into the promised land. And so from the very beginning, it was bearing children for slavery. But Paul goes further and says, now this corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now, what's Jerusalem got to do with anything? Well, Sinai is where the old covenant was born. Jerusalem is the place where the law is administered. That's where you have the temple. That's where you have the feast. That's where you have the sacrifices. That's where you have the uh, teaching that goes out from. The, actually, uh, the problem that the Galatians are experiencing right now is that these false teachers came from Jerusalem. And he says they correspond with the present Jerusalem that administers the law. It was all centered in the Jerusalem of Paul's day. And just like Hagar, who was never a free woman from the time she was born until, uh, until the time she was cast out and presumably until the time she died, she was always a slave. 
She was never a free woman. And the law in the same way from its beginning at Mount Sinai to its present administration in Jerusalem, it is always and only good for enslaving. It is only good for producing children of slavery. Everyone who is seeking salvation by the law from beginning to end are only cursed, are only slaves. We've seen this already. If you look back, and most of us just have to flip the page to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. The law requires absolute perfection. Not just in outer obedience, but even in inner and heart obedience. It requires absolute perfection. And unless you can meet that standard, you are in slavery. You are a slave to your sin, slave to yourself, slave to the curse. And by the way, this is not new with Paul. This is not new with the Old Testament. Paul's saying, Galatians, do you not, do you, are you not reading the law? Do you not hear the message of the law? Do you not see what it's actually doing? The law itself tells us that it cannot save us. The law itself tells us that it cannot save us. Look in, uh, we're going to do some Bible drills here. Look in uh, Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. In fact, we'll begin in verse two. It says, Moses summoned all Israel. You have seen all the Lord has done before your eyes in the land of Egypt and Pharaoh and to all his servants into the land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders, all these things that you saw the Lord do. But look in verse four, what he says. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. You don't have a heart to understand or see or hear the law. Your heart's not there. The Lord hasn't given it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 30, just a chapter over. As he talks about how they're going to fail, they're going to go into captivity, they're going to, go, they're going to be dispersed over into a foreign land. God says at the other side of that, on the other end of that, in verse six, he says, then the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God is going to circumcise their heart an early, an early prophecy of the new covenant. Early prophecy of the new covenant. All the way back in the law, it tells us that God has to circumcise your heart. God has to change you from the inside because you don't have a heart to obey the law. The law is not the problem. It's us. It's us. We're the problem. And the law exposes our slavery and it leads us to condemnation. I'm going to ruin a verse that a lot of you probably have posted in your home, living room, or kitchen. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. We all have that verse hanging in our wall, right? It says, choose, you, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will what? 
Serve the Lord, right? And Israel says, me too. But look at verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. You are not able. Why? Because he's a holy God. And he is a jealous God. And he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. You're not able. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But you are not able. He is a holy God who requires absolute holiness. And he cannot overlook your sin and transgression. See, already in the law, we're setting up this tension, aren't we? That God must, uh, must pour out justice for our sin, but he is also a merciful, also a loving God who is going to circumcise our hearts and give us a new heart to serve him. We're already seeing this tension, aren't we? And Paul's saying, do you not hear the message of the law? Do you not see the problem? You're trying to live by the law. The law itself tells you you can't. It testifies that the law itself is not the answer. And Paul asks, aren't you listening? Whatever law you give, aren't you listening to it? It's setting you up for failure. Moses diagnosed the problem in Numbers chapter 11. Verse 29, there are a couple of people who are prophesying in the camp and Joshua comes up to Moses, loyal Joshua comes up to Moses and says, Moses, don't let them do that. And Moses in verse 29 says, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord will put his spirit on them. Moses recognized the problem. Moses recognized that in our flesh, we cannot serve God. We cannot please God. We are sinful. We are sinful to the core and everything we do is tarnished by our sin. Moses recognized the problem and he says, don't be jealous that I have the spirit. I want all God's people to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Moses recognized the problem. And the new covenant is the answer to that problem. What is the new covenant? God says, I will put my spirit within you. The very thing that Moses himself says we need, God says, I will give you in the new covenant. And we know now through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the law. The law was never meant to earn our salvation. It was always meant to point us to a greater provision that God himself is going to provide the very righteousness that we need. And he's going to do it in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. God gives us the very righteousness, the very holiness, and he puts it to our account so that we can go and live with him. That's exactly what God has done. And so, and so Paul, and uh, going back to Galatians, and, uh, and Paul, 
He says in verse 26, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. The, the issue is that we need a new birth. The issue is that not that you can be a, a great person. The issue is not how good of a person can I be. The issue is whose son am I? Am I the son of Hagar? Or am I the son of the promise? And, and, and Paul says, unlike the present Jerusalem, the Jerusalem from above is free, has never been enslaved. Just like from the time she was born until the time she died, Sarah was never a slave. Hagar was never free, but Sarah was never a slave. And she bore children of freedom. And that is the freedom that you and I have. In Christ. And that's why Paul says in verse 27 Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has the husband. We have no relationship with Mount Sinai anymore. We have no relationship with the present Jerusalem. Our Jerusalem is from above. And she's free. And we have freedom because we are citizens of a new city. I love Philippians chapter three, verse 20. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a new citizenship brought into a new kingdom like Sarah has never been in slavery. So Paul says, rejoice. Man, if that doesn't make you smile, your blessers broke. If that doesn't put a smile on your face, if that doesn't just lift up, what's the old song? Uh, burdens are lifted at Calvary. Our slavery is lifted at Calvary. Our, our condemnation is lifted at Calvary. Everything that is going to be against us is lifted at Calvary, taken away by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is removed from our account and what we get in place of it is all the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the only way that it's going to be taken away from you, brothers and sisters, is if Jesus sins. It's blasphemous to even say that. Jesus would have to die again for you to lose your salvation. Do you know that? Because it's not about you. It was never about you. The Jerusalem above is free. And you are free in Jesus Christ. How did he do this? The, you know, Paul's quoting the Old Testament here and, and it's significant to see where he's quoting from because he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 54, verse one. And in that passage, Isaiah is evoking this same imagery, this idea that Sarah was barren and yet by her barrenness and in her barrenness, she gave forth uh, children who will literally encompass all the earth. The, the child of the children of the desolate one will outnumber the children of the one who has the husband. It's striking. This is an announcement of salvation and a call to participate in God's salvation of his people. And how did he provide that salvation? Well, I'm gonna ask you a very deep, exegetical, theological question here. And I had to go to seminary a long time to, to see this. 
What chapter comes before Isaiah 54? (laughs) Isaiah 53. That's it. You are now seminary graduates. (laughs) Right? What chapter comes before Isaiah 54? Isaiah 53. And what provides this salvation for us? It is the death and the suffering of the suffering servant of God. The one who bore our wounds. The one who by his stripes we are healed. The one who who took our sins and our transgressions and the chastisement of our peace was upon his shoulders. And by his wounds we are healed. And now because of that provision, Isaiah 54, 1 says, Rejoice! Because the barren one is going to have children who expands over all the earth. It is a prophecy of the church. That, that expand your tent, expand your horizons, go out to all the earth for all her children will be gathered from every nation, every tongue, every tribe. And, and aren't you glad of that? Because how many of us in here are Jews? No one, right? At least not that I know of. We are products, we are, we are recipients of that promise, that provision. And Isaiah, through Paul, through God says, rejoice! Because we are free. Because Christ died for us. What an amazing, amazing gift. What amazing mercy. Our sins, they were many, but his mercy is more. Where sin abounds, grace has so much more abounded. He has covered us. He has given us freedom. And how can we not but rejoice? How can we not but lift up our hands and lift up our eyes? And I'm not talking about charismatic extremes, but but find the joy in our hearts to rejoice in the incredible gift that God has given us. How could we put our faith in anything else? How could we put our faith in anything that we think our flesh can produce? In fact, Isaiah goes on to tell us our best righteousness is as filthy rags. It's all we can do. Beloved, put your hope in Jesus Christ. And those who have heard the true message of the law who see its condemnation, who see that we are not able to even begin to obey the law, we rejoice because Christ has provided us with the very righteousness and holiness that we need to be saved. And so Paul gives this wonderful illustration in the last few verses. Like every good preacher, he's going to apply them. And so the third response we see here is we saw to rely on his promise to rejoice in his provision. And then finally, verses 28 through chapter five, verse one, is to remain in his power. Remain in his power. And just very quickly, I'm almost out of time. So it says here in verse 28, he ends this great illustration by now speaking directly to the Galatians. He says to them, verse 28, now you brothers and sisters, you like Isaac, you are children of promise. You are children of promise. And so the first thing we need to do is to place our faith in that promise. 
Isaac was a child of promise because Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And in the same way, when we believe in the promise that is provided through Jesus Christ, through God's plan of redemption in the gospel, then we become children of promise. We are removed from the slavery of Sinai and we are placed into the freedom of New Jerusalem. We've been removed from our old slave master. We've been placed into a new kingdom, into a new family. We are children of promise. And like Ishmael, Isaac was not born of the works of Abraham's flesh. He was born according to the promise. And just like that, you and I, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are born according to the promise. Look at Romans chapter 4. And I've outlived my time, but... I've got to read this. So eh, close to our souls. As it is written, I have made you, talking about Abraham, a father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Beloved, are you trying to be born of your own works or are you trying to be born of the faith of Abraham? Faith just like Abraham. Our faith is not in our own dead works, but in the righteousness of Christ applied to us through his death on the cross. So we need to ensure that we are indeed children of promise. We need to make sure that we are truly trusting in the promise of the gospel. That we have indeed placed our entire dependence upon Christ alone and his work for our salvation Just as Sarah's body was barren and unable to produce any kind of promise, so our works are dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins and we cannot produce any good of our own. But through faith and the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can know that we are now children like Isaac of promise. That's our freedom. Number two, persevere. Persevere. In verse 29 and 30, he draws out one more illustration from, it, from Ishmael and Isaac. He says, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Understand, we are declared righteous not by the law, not by works, not by a prayer we pray, not by an aisle we walk, not by a Bible we sign, but through faith and the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ poured out on the law. And when we understand that that we are born by grace and not by flesh, you need to understand that there are some people who are very offended by that. And just like the son who was born according to flesh, 
who felt that he deserved all the rights and privileges of being the son of promise, when he saw that Isaac received by grace what he felt like he deserved, he did not like it. And beloved, always remember this, legalism hates grace. Always does. Always does. Just like the older brother and the younger brother. Just like Ishmael and Isaac. Just like Cain and Abel. Legalism hates grace. And we should expect that. Especially in a culture that is so obsessed with everything self. Self-help, self-esteem, self-assertion, self-actualization. All basically different ways of saying self-righteousness. And in a culture that is obsessed with self, so much of which has crept into the church, we should understand that the preaching of the cross will always be foolishness to those who are perishing. It will always be foolish to those who don't know the power of God's grace. They will criticize. They will accuse. They will speak all manners of evil. They will bring up old sins over and over and over again. They will refuse to forgive. Jesus says, when they treat you like this, rejoice and be glad because you know your reward in heaven is great. When someone brings up old sins of mine, it, it, it just it causes me to rejoice because that's what I'm forgiven of. You're just, you're, you're just helping me, brother. Thank you. Criticize me all you want <laughs> because these are all the things that Christ has forgiven me of. All you do when you criticize a brother is you show the power of God. That's all you're doing. You're making the case that God is great, not me. That God is powerful, not me. And so take comfort in verse 30 because we will receive the inheritance. What did he say to the slave woman and her son? Cast them out because the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free woman. Take comfort because we will gain the inheritance promised. Always remember, legalism hates grace. Hates it. Because we receive by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, what they feel like they deserve. Because they've worked so hard. And so, and then finally in verse 31 through chapter 5, verse 1, pursue godliness. Pursue godliness. Understand, being saved in, being saved in Christ is not a license to sin we still find a reflection of God's glory. We still find a reflection of God's holiness in the law. And so we go to the law to learn about God and to learn how we can be holy. We do, we do see that. Don't take your freedom. He says here, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. You know, today in America, we think freedom means that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, without any constraint, without any restraint, and there should be nothing that anybody says whatsoever. That's, that's not the biblical definition of freedom. Freedom is what we have. We have from the guilt-establishing and deadening power of the law. We are free to live faith, live by faith in Jesus Christ. We are free to serve God and please Him. We are free to live righteously, whereas before all I could serve was my own self-serving purposes in the law. Now I am free to where I can truly serve God with a clean conscience. 
And beloved, there is no pillow as soft as a clean conscience. For freedom, we are set free, so don't turn back to the law. Don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to all of that. You are free in Jesus Christ. Live in that freedom. Do you know what a cure that is for perfectionism, anxiety, so many kinds of depression, so many kinds of worry? To know that we are free in Christ. To know that we are free in His love. To live in the power of His resurrection given by the Spirit within us. So, beloved, live in freedom and use that freedom rightly to serve God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength through the power of the Spirit. Let's bow our heads for a moment and let me just ask for some self-reflection here. Beloved, what is it that makes you acceptable to God? What is it? in your own heart that you believe makes you accepted by God? Are you living trying to please Him? What's your motivation for that? Is it love out of His great gift for you or is it trying to earn His favor and material blessings? One I didn't write down, but Some of you may be struggling with this this morning. Do you live under a constant cloud of guilt? Are you living under a constant cloud of not feeling like you're enough? That nothing you do is right? That you simply cannot live up to the expectations? Are you drowning in the weight of your own guilt? Beloved, come to Christ this morning and have the freedom that comes from the gospel. He didn't die so that you could drown in the, gate of, in the guilt of legalism. He died so that he could set you free. So that you could have a clean conscience and you can have the power to live by faith. Our Father, we thank you for this powerful illustration by Paul this morning. I thank you that you have hammered it in our heads that salvation is by grace through faith. And now, Father, as we see in the concluding chapters how that grace through faith changes us, how it produces fruit, the things that it does in practical day-to-day life, Lord, I pray that We would never move away. We would never outgrow the gospel. It is truly the power that saves us and truly the power that enables us to please you. Lord, if there's one here this morning that has not placed their total dependence and faith upon Jesus Christ and the work he's done for us, I pray this morning would be the morning you draw them to yourself, give them a new heart, Lord, help them to respond to you in faith, saving faith, turning faith, not just a momentary decision, but a life-creating 
faith in Jesus Christ. And it's to that end that we do everything we do. Amen.